0: High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply.
2: Late night Midnight on the
1: interstate And I
2: didn't feel so great Until I saw the city
1: Welcome back to Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. Thanks, as always, for everybody for tuning in. And again, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, now is the time to take advantage of our dollar-a-month offer by going to theathletic.com slash straightfromthesource. Uh, trade deadline coming up. Playoffs coming up. You don't want to wait to get in. Now is the time to take advantage of this if you've never been a subscriber before. Really fun podcast today with Tom Lynn, the former original Wild assistant general manager, uh, one of the first employees ever. Uh, hired with the Minnesota Wild actually used to be Doug Reisbrow's roommate when they were first taking this franchise off the ground. Uh, He's also a current agent for Veritas Hockey, and he wrote the book How to Bake an NHL Franchise from Scratch, which is on the expansion Wild. But Tom, during this podcast, dishes on so many cool stories from Doug Risebrow and Jacques Lemaire to uh, trades that 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 got away from them and and uh, signings that potentially got away from them and contract negotiations like Marion Gabrick and the maturation of Brent Burns and um, amazingly the 10-year anniversary coming up of the death of Derek Bugard, which I'll be doing a story on at The Athletic. Um, you know, everything from the Calder Cup to his peach suits to the night he lost his cell phone the night before the Pavel Dimitri trade in Vancouver. So we had a lot of fun on this podcast. Hope everybody enjoys um, the Minnesota Wild. A couple damaging losses since we last spoke uh, in Colorado. Uh, definitely damaging uh, more for their pride uh, than than maybe in the standings. But uh, Absolutely. I think it's an example that might have been a little bit of a wake-up call for, for uh, Billy Guerin on just that this team still has a long way to go and how much damage can they really do in the playoffs. We'll see. I mean, a couple bad games in the middle of a tired, long, busy stretch. So, um, you know, we'll we'll get a better idea of how this team does in their f- final 25 games here, 26 games here, where they play the St. Louis Blues eight times. They're a team uh, that the Wild sometimes are good against, sometimes aren't good against. And really, St. Louis and Minnesota will be, Um, You know, jockeying back and forth for a uh, playoff spot. Uh, But, uh, you know, good news on Monday night where the Wild grind out a two one win again, they're a tired team, but they got a a lot of uh, great goaltending from Cam Talbot, a game winning goal from Nick Bukestad, a power play goal from Ryan. Take him off the power play suitor. Um, and, uh, you know, a, believe it or not, a third straight game of no points for Kirill Kaprizov and Matt Zuccarello, who does look tired right now, um, in the athletic today, I did a big feature or not really a feature, but a news story, but also an analysis of what Kirill Kaprizov's. Uh, next contract could look like, and the complications in this matter. Paul Theophanas, Kirill Kaprizov's agent, is actually in town and uh, probably right as we speak, uh, sitting down with Billy Garen. It's the beginning of contract talks, although it won't be a contract negotiation per se, unless they hit somehow hit on the the right thing uh, notes right off the bat. But more, this is going to be sort of an introductory conversation to try to feel out what each other you know are are thinking when it comes to a Kaprizov uh next contract. The Wild would like to sign up long-term. I think if the price is right, they'd even go seven or eight years with him. Um, what they don't want to do is go short-term because they only own his rights for three more years and he become an unrestricted free agent after the 2023-24 season. So you don't want to really go one or two years or definitely not three because you don't want any risk of him saying, you know what, I'm going to get out of here. If worse comes to worse, maybe you sign him a one-year deal and you revisit this next offseason. But But the big thing is, you know, with somebody that's only going to have 56 games of of NHL history and statistical evidence, the Wild are going to have to do a lot of projections here. Paul Theofanus just signed Caprice, uh, excuse me, Terry in a, a year ago to a contract that was 11.6 a year for seven years with the Rangers. The Wild are not going that expensive. Um, the, the, what uh, my gut says is what the agent at the end of the story tells me is that the Wild will probably go five or six years. If you're off, you don't want to sign long term unless it's crazy money, 11 or 12 million a year, because you want to get that on your next contract. And if the Wild aren't gonna w- willing to give that now, maybe you take your contract to age 27 or 28 and then you try to hit a home run either in free agency or with the wild then. If you're the wild, same thing. If you're not gonna get Caprice off on an eight-year deal at a reasonable seven or eight million dollars a year, to me, you want to take him till twenty-eight, five or six years and then revisit this in the future. So that's my gut of what is gonna happen is that it's gonna wind up being at the end of the day a five or six year deal. Billy Guerin will try for eight. It won't necessarily be eight. I wouldn't panic if that's the case. Where I would start to get a little worried is if it's all of a sudden a one or two year deal, uh, because then you're transferring all the leverage in this contract negotiation to Kaprizov, because in a year or two, he could just say, you know what, I'm going to go to free agency in a year or two from then. And and then now the Wild are in a position where they're going to have to trade him. So that's just uh, my thoughts on that. Again, if you want to read that story, now's the time to get in at theathletic.com slash straight from the source. Dollar a month will let you read that article and all the articles coming up here that are just going to be uh, jam-packed. Uh, with uh, Wild coverage in the next little bit, plus coverage throughout our site. But without further ado, just a really, really fun podcast with former Wild assistant GM Tom Lin. And as mentioned, welcome to Tom Lin, the original assistant GM of the Minnesota Wild. Uh, Now on the dark side, the agent business, uh, which, you know, I had to think Tom, that, that uh, when you first move over to that side, it was pretty awkward because your job as the assistant GM of the Minnesota wild a long time was to negotiate contracts, get the best contract for the team. Now you change avenues and you try to get the best con uh, contract for your client. How, how big of a transition was it at the first, uh, at first when you did that?
2: You know, the transition was enormous and bigger than I expected. I initially, uh, I shouldn't say rejected. I pushed back against it. Some wild players, Brian Ralston and Dwayne Rolston, had said to me initially, like, you were such a hard ass on the team side. You know, I you worked for the league switch sides and work for the PA. And I was like, I don't want to move to Toronto because that was before fear. And everyone came in. So then uh, they said, you should be an agent. I thought thought of all the negatives of being an agent and what I dealt with as a contract negotiator and in the community. And I didn't realize all the positives until I switched sides, but it took me many months uh, to come around to the idea that, Hey, I can, work in the sport and use all the hockey capital I built up over two decades and, and in the end, help people, which is what you do on an individual basis. And that's what what really made the transition start to happen for me. And then it all hit. And then, like I've told you this before, but I was on the pro side with the Wild, So I was GM of the minor league team, assistant GM of the Wild, and ran the pro scouting staff for a lot of the years there. Amateur hockey is a Byzantine world, a beautiful work of art, but not a science and interweaving all the elite league and high school and Bantam and Midget and 18U and 16U and MJHL and BCHL and NHL, USHL, college, division one, uh, major junior, like all these amateur leagues and how it all operates and all the, how would you say <laughs> all the local customs and culture that go along with it was all learning experience for me for the first two years.
1: The um, By the way, Tom is coming to us from the University Club in St. Paul and what's really Um, coincidental about that Tom is that uh, and I don't know if I've ever told you this my first interview at the Star Tribune was at the University Club with my editor Mark Wallman who's now with us at The Athletic but he and I met on the patio there at the University Club overlooking downtown St. Paul and I remember sitting there being interviewed by Mark thinking like man I hope I get this job.
2: (laughs) The U Club helped you along well we remember there's members there for years and for Your listeners, the University Club is uh, built in 1908, and it was a favorite hangout of S. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda during the Roaring 20s, and it has all that stuff still up. It hasn't changed a bit, and so I love being able to sit in the library there and look at the same books and shelves they did and then go up to my room, and I sometimes pontificate on whether my office was once their room because they stayed at the University Club. Many, many, many nights after too much uh, drinking. <laughs> Isn't that where
1: they, I mean, like they, is that where they have a lot of those breakfasts, like those 7 a.m. breakfasts where all of a sudden like, you know, Matt Maker or Craig Leopold will shut up, uh, show up and, and talk
2: to a bunch of people or am I wow, wrong on that? you're going back to pre-COVID times for me. Yeah. Yes, It was very common I'd show up for work and there'd be a, a gaggle of people in the lobby and I wonder why they were there. Sometimes it was for all kinds of events and often yeah. hockey.
1: Yeah, it's pretty, pretty neat. Now, you're one of the first original Wild employees, uh, Tom. Uh, You worked for the league, actually, before you came to the Minnesota Wild. Um, How did Doug Riseborough hire you and tell everybody who you lived with your first couple of months in Minnesota?
2: (laughs) Well, the time of transition was very interesting for me because I was with a big law firm there in New York looking to get out like everyone does. You go to a big law firm to start and you have this plan. You're going to have a better life and raise kids and move out of New York City and all that. But I had been sending out resumes and talking to groups, nothing going. And then within the course of a week, I got offered by the XFL, which seemed like the best job, <laughs> Salt Lake Organizing Committee for the Olympics. And uh, Doug Risborough called me and said, hey, I called the league. And, you know, some of these teams have a lawyer doing all their administrative stuff and it screws up the hockey side. And some teams have a hockey guy doing it and he doesn't know the law or the CBA. I asked him, is there anyone out there who's played hockey to high level who's also a lawyer knows the CBA? And they recommended you. So it was a cold open." You know, it was just, <laughs> I, was, I didn't even get a heads up. I knew Rise Brow's name, but here I was a lawyer in New York. So, started the process. I was close to accepting the job of the XFL because they had a two-year TV contract at NBC. It was run by the World Wrestling Entertainment uh, Company, which is very popular then. It was 20 minutes from my house. Called my dad, and I said, here's what I'm thinking of doing, and this is prestigious. I'd be the number two guy. I'd stay in New York. I'd be somebody. And he says, well, what would you do if prestige and money weren't part of the deal? Because the money was a lot less for the Wild." I said, well, of course I'd work in hockey, Dad, but that's crazy. He says, well, why don't you do that then? And I thought, well, why don't I do that? So there we were. My wife and I, she was an attorney in New York as well. We both packed up, quit our jobs, and came to Minnesota. Unbelievable. You know what happened next, right?
1: Yeah. What did happen next? Tell everybody.
2: Uh, so Doug and I had to start up a team. I was the fourth employee, I think, <laughs> full-time in hockey ops. I sat down with them. You know, it's the first week I'd come out. My wife's going to try to get the house ready for sale and all that back in New York, and I asked him a series of questions. You know, who's doing immigration for the scouts? How is the the, the arena shaping up as far as where your quarters are and what's going on there? Is anyone done the? You have to do a lot of things in advance on charter flights and expansion drafts. He's like, yeah, nothing. I'm thinking of a coach though. I think I have a coach in mind. So I was like, holy crap! Like, this is a true startup. This is this is just an idea, and someone has to do all the administrative part. Doug was a brilliant leader and a great hockey guy, but. The thought of doing immigration for scouts who were soon to be crossing the border in both ways hadn't occurred to me. That takes some time uh, and a lot of other details like that. So we put off bringing our families in for four, about four months, four and a half, five months. And so we both lived together in the Gultier, downtown St. Paul. Uh, while paid for it. We worked from 7 a.m. till sometimes 8 or 10 at night. We watched hockey highlights at the end of the day and then got up in the morning and did it all over again. Had food delivered in 14 hour days. It was one of the best periods of my life. But I learned a lot in a short period of time, and I think Doug did too.
1: <laughs> it's probably the hockey player in Doug. He's like figured I might as well have a roommate that's my right-hand man.
2: Yeah, it doesn't have to reach far. Doug Doug loved having uh, someone close by to grab onto when you have questions. That's for sure.
1: Um, and and he, you mentioned that he right away knew who he wanted to coach the team. Was there any part of you at the very beginning that's like, well, do we really want a great hockey coach to start this franchise? Like maybe we should go for uh, broke at first and – and, uh, and maybe get a couple top, top draft picks?
2: No. <clears throat> there was never any question. It's funny because it's now public. We inter- interviewed uh, Dean Blaze mm-hmm. and Dave Tippett as kind of the backups because he didn't know if Jacques was going to do that. And so Dave Tippett was a number one choice, and Dean uh, was an interesting choice as well, having come off a great year, run at the UND at the time. But in the case of Jacques, Doug had – a theory which is laid out more in my in my book, so I won't go over all of it here. But most of our organization, directly or indirectly, resulted from the mind of Scotty Bowman, starting back with the St. Louis Blues in the late '60s, the '67 expansion. So Mike Ramsey, Gila Point, Mario Tremblay, Jacques Lemaire, Doug Riseborough <clears throat> had all played for or worked with Scotty at some point, and so they had a way of approaching the game that was extremely detailed, that was very dedicated, and I would almost say. Uh, you know, it reminds me of how some football coaches approach it. This is life, and so the thought of landing Jacques for Doug was just the top-notch thing. And I was told this a week into my job. I'd been a lawyer for the league, so I wasn't dipped in hockey yet. In hockey yet, and I thought, well, I went and saw him play in the Forum in 1973, and I thought he was great. So, <laughs> it sounded good to me.
1: Yeah, uh, and I am remiss. I, I mentioned in the open open, but uh, but uh, uh, Tom wrote the book, uh, How to Bake an NHL Franchise from Scratch. It's a book on the expansion Minnesota Wild. This is a 20 year anniversary show, of the Minnesota Wild. Um, so I highly, highly recommend people going and reading that book. Uh, I'm sure you can get it on Amazon, right,
2: uh, Tom? Certainly can.
1: Absolutely. Um, Let me ask you. uh, I mean, does it amaze you that we've that this organization's already been around twenty years? I mean, you were there right at the very beginning, where you were walking around your apartment in pajamas with Doug Risebrow. Now here we are, twenty years later, um, in the middle of very odd times, um, and this organization is is you know uh, one of the top ones in
2: the league. Right, and and, you know, I think of it a different way. A lot of people might think this way. It's like looking back on your. Child's life. You don't think of it as, oh, my child's turning 20. It's 20 linear years. You more think of it as different stages. Mm-hmm. And to that respect, I think of the initial stages as one thing in my mind, kind of the first four years until that first lockout year that we lost. Then there's a second stage where we competed for division championships and expected to do better. Third stage was the kind of stumbling or, or treading water as they tried to move on from a Jacques Lamar Doug Risebrow era. And really, you know, had some challenges for a few years and then got some footing after that and and went into what would be the the kind of current phase. So there's different phases. When I think of it that way, it doesn't seem as long. It seems like four of those things rather than 20 linear years. And for the fans, I would think they'd see it the same way, almost like different teams. And you're an Islanders fan, so you probably feel the same way.
1: Yeah, no, no doubt about it. There was some tough sledding there in the late 80s, early 90s, that's for sure. Yeah,
2: tough sledding, yeah. good sledding. There were yep. two good sledding times that were different, so yep. you don't even compare them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, uh, you could follow Tom's uh, agency on Twitter, at Veritas Hockey, uh, on Twitter. Again, V-E-R-I-T-A-S Hockey on Twitter. Uh, and again, Tom is now an agent um, after years, uh, 10 years being the assistant GM of the Minnesota Wild. Uh, Tom, what were those early years like? I remember when I first started covering the team in 2005, that salary cap was implemented, and, and you guys had a $22 million payroll, if I remember. Now they're up to 81 and a half. I mean, you were trying to pretty much uh, put together teams with uh, having to be pretty much that hard-ass negotiator from an assistant GM standpoint.
2: Right. Our first year spending ended up, that was our budget, our spending ended up, ended up being $17.4 million dollars at the NHL level. And uh, I think it was seven of our first eight seasons, we were the lowest spending team in the league. So sometimes people look at our success in terms purely of hockey. Um, But I I like to think of that time as not only in hockey, but as a money ball type thing. We did it for much less money. And by much less, I mean much less. There there were teams spending over $70 million, and we were spending between 18 and 22. So it wasn't like we were spending 22 and the Rangers were spending 30. Detroit, the Rangers, Colorado, and Dallas were all spending, you know, an insane amount, relatively. So in our case, we were trying to find players who were an in inefficiency in the market. I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. And then Jacques would help find what made them good. But after a few years, it became very difficult to trade players for value because everyone noticed that players didn't play as well elsewhere as they did for the Wild.
1: Let me ask you about the Ralston deal. That was oh. the one I wanted to ask you. I mean that yeah. that one, like to me, like I come here in two thousand five. And you guys have him at like two, what, a little under three, right? Right. On a four-year deal. The first one was, first year was wiped out uh, because of the lockout. Um, But, you know, when you look at at all the contracts that you did with the Wild, I feel like that has to be the one that you're most prideful for, for a guy that came here and scored three 30-goal seasons.
2: Yeah, you know, it was an odd time in hockey because, no. (laughs) heck. Actually, it's just like now. So let's say it's the second time now. We don't know what it looks like going forward. So those are negotiating contracts like the current wild players. There's a lot of uncertainty. Coming out of lockout, there was uncertainty. The Boston Bruins had taken a strategy from their owner that they would let a lot of their free agents go, or almost all of them, because the cap would be so low going forward that they could re-sign them for low money. The strategy kind of failed, so we are able to get Rolston uh, interested and at the time, also the, the cap wasn't really high, but it was relatively uncertain. And for him to come to a place where he knew the coach, he had com- he was comfortable with the organization, had some stability to reestablish his career, or further establish his career, I should say, gave us some leverage to squeeze him in under our salary cap, which was very low. But really, you know, I got to credit Brian with taking the chance there because he could have gone to I say lesser, uh, more challenging more challenged organizations uh, for a little more money.
1: And then trading, Brian, <laughs> that that was, yeah. that was, you were one of the first teams I think that traded a pending UFA for a pick that you weren't going right. to sign and it created this trend in the NHL. Um, did you know at the time that Tampa Bay wasn't going to be able to get him done or, or you traded him for, was it a fourth?
2: It was a conditional third, you would call it, because the okay. third that became a fourth if they weren't able to sign him. Okay. So the official um, trade will look like a third in the books, and then it became a fourth.
1: Right. Did you ever, I mean, did you always think that he was going to go, it was Brian Lawton I think you guys made that trade with?
2: Yes. You know, it was a very difficult time for Tampa at the time. because Remember, the ownership was kind of split, Warren Gullis mm-hmm. and Len Berry. and they we actually had two different people from this team calling us <laughs> on the trade. <laughs> <laughs> so as Doug said to me, he always turned to me in these situations like, what do we do? I said, well, let's see who will give us the best deal. <laughs> we'll pursue that guy. so it was uh things were a bit challenged there and and for brian who's trying to do his best i admire him for it and len was trying to do something different but the backstory there is that the prior year or the prior um trade deadline we had been we'd you know seen what rolston's value was worth because what if we can't sign him and the most we were offered was a conditional third round pick and so now not only was that not enough for us to let him go we figured it might be his value at the end of the year which turned out to be true we ended up with a division championship and getting essentially the same value right before the draft. And so it was kind of a, a win-win for the team. We didn't want to lose the player, but given that it was inevitable, we were going to lose the player. We managed to get the rest of the season out of him and the same consideration back.
1: The, the one thing I do want to backtrack on that I I've, uh, that I probably should have hit on before is, is you go, you guys go to the Western conference final, 2002, um, three. We've talked about that mm-hmm. a ton on these 20 year anniversary shows. Um, the next year, Again, I'm not covering the team yet, but you have two whole two contract disputes. One with Marion Gabrick, uh, the other with Pascal Depuy. Same agent, Alan Walsh. Um, how how difficult was that whole situation for the organization?
2: Well, it was challenging, no doubt. Uh what you may not have seen at the surface level, and, and you see some if you read my book, is Doug started preparing us for that the prior year in probably who late February, early March. And he used to tell me something that stuck with me to this day is that Tom say you make the worst deals when you think you have no options, whether it's in hockey or in life. If you feel like, oh, I have to have this. In your case, you want that Cadillac DeVille, right? That 76 Cadillac DeVille. And you're like, you have to have it. So you keep offering money till you get it. But if you have three cars you want, you do the best deal you can. So with Gabrick, he was very set on the idea that we do not have to sign this player. It would be nice for both sides if we do. We introduced that to the owner who prepared us. And then going through the summer, We worked with the merchandising and sponsorship and marketing departments because, of course, they wanted to put Gabrick on the cover of the team ticket, calendar, everything that went out. Like, hey, we got a star. And we were saying, you don't want to do that in case he's not playing. And so we backed off the team and and made them focus on, I shouldn't say backed off the team, backed off the business side, made them focus on the team. So it was all the preparation. So going into the fall, as the rhetoric ramped up on their side, because we kept a quiet time, uh, Ellen Walsh landed. Pascal Dupuis as a client, because he was with someone else, on the promise he would get him a million dollars. And the reason I know this is because a lot of the players lived in my neighborhood, so we talked a lot. (laughs) Pascal lived within walking distance. He actually came over my house once. So I said to him, geez, Pascal, it's just not true. Like, where we were in the NHL then and where the bargaining power was, he was going to be somewhere between 650 and 800, and that's just the way it was. And he had no leverage, and he had no arbitration rights. But the idea was the agent would use holding out the two players, the two highest goal scorers, to get a better contract from the Wild." And we were prepared for it. And so, you know, in quick fashion, the holdout started. We played. The agent thought we would break. Even ended up going around us trying to call the owner who gave him some choice words. And then at some point, Gabrick realized, Halloween's coming. I'm not being signed. And where's my career going? You know, as a young player to miss a season is, is anathema. And so he ended up switching agents to get a deal done. And Pascal came in for the number we initially offered him. But it was a difficult time for the organization. I think it was more difficult for the players at the time, for the strategies they had been given.
1: And, and uh, so Gabrick uh, went to Ron Salser then, and that's Correct. when you guys got a deal done with him?
2: Right. And that's right. When the, the famous scene of me and Ron Salser in Mickey's Diner in St. Paul, where he was wiping off the silverware with a napkin and looking very nervous. <laughs> Oh man! uh that had to be pretty fun. I remember the quote he said to me when we she gave us the menu. She walked away and he said, "Hey, what's safe to order here <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh I remember I went to Mickey's once and i watched uh I watched the cook throw like a just a just a you know ladle of lard on the grill and yeah, I'm like, eh, I don't think good. this is gonna be good for my my weight so good." <laughs> That is the type of thing that you like to eat.
2: Yeah, that's true. So we got a deal done, uh, helped along with the lard and the liver and onions I ordered. Uh, over the oh,
1: man, I forgot that you eat that stuff. Yeah,
2: and then we uh, we moved on. And, and An important thing to note during this is that Doug's strategy was a five-year strategy to start out, just like the communists, actually, but a five-year plan to start out. So after the third year... Of success, he went to the ownership uh, group and just said, "Look, we can get off track here. If we try to pursue success before we have a foundation, it could crumble. So the fourth year was going to be a step back." I and mean, we didn't say it publicly. We didn't say the stamp fans, "Hey, we're going to lose," but we said, "We still need draft picks. We still need to trade away guys right. to, draft to, to build this." So that interior wise took the pressure off signing Gabrick as well.
1: By the way, as you could tell uh, uh, with the liver and onions, uh, Tom is an eccentric fellow. Uh, <laughs> has has you? Yeah, I know. Tom, Tom used to call me Rusty anytime I saw him. Um, but the, uh, but uh, every time I think of Tom, I always think of different hairstyles, different facial. St- like you could t- see Tom two days in a row, maybe two hours apart, and he'll have a different look. Um, but the other thing is that you had the greatest suits. And one of the great memories I ever had was at the, at the draft in Columbus. You just – we were like out for a drink one night and you just running back to the Renaissance in your peach suit across the road. And I just thought it was the
2: greatest look. You How many times run- have I told you? It's not pink. It's salmon.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Peach. That's what I always called it. You called it salmon. Your you know, salmon that,
2: suit. I wore that jacket because it annoyed Jock. And uh, <laughs> I just love to see the look on his face when I came into the coach's room with it on.
1: Yeah, but it's Andrew Burnett used to wear like a burgundy jacket, and I used to call yeah. it ca- Cabernet Sauvignon. So that's, I used to
2: ask it. him, uh, I used to think he was uh, the character from my cousin Vinny when he, yeah. remember, he loses his suit and he has to wear the movie theater boys. <laughs> <laughs> in, but you know, on, on that part, just to hit on the agency part, you know, that was a tough transition for me. Yeah. Because I wanted to take agency seriously, do it a different way. Veritas, New York agency, means truth in Latin. So we want to be very candid and very honest which we spent 10 years doing now. But In the beginning, I went from an eccentric for the team. I could dress or drive whatever I wanted. You know, We were buyers <laughs> in the market. So when you're out there shopping or whatever else, what you wear, I mean, I, there's some bounds, don't get me wrong, but I could be myself. <laughs> and now I'm thrown into a sales role for the first time in my life in 2011. Right. I'm certified as an agent in June 1, 2011, after wrestling with Don Fear for a few months because he thought I might steal their secrets and go back to the other side, right? So he held me off. Really? <clears throat> so, certified. And uh, I've got to dress normally. I've got to wear normal clothes and have a nice haircut and shave. And so it was <laughs> tough on me for a few years. And at some point around 2015, I was like, ah, screw it. I'm going to be myself. So right. I'm myself.
1: Yeah. Tell me about um, it, about Dupuis. I mean, I, the, the, one of the things I remember in my early years covering the team is the trade that you guys sent him. I think we were coming from Edmonton or Calgary, and we landed in Chicago. And I think you guys traded him, to uh, Was it the Atlanta Thrashers at the time, I believe, for Adam Hall? And, um, you know, that, that he was, a, he was one of those guys. I mean, he had a little cockiness to him, a little swagger. I mean, one of the, he really went down hall with Jacques at the end of his run here with the wild. There was one incident in practice where I think Jacques said, <laughs> said to, if you don't want to be in practice, you know, whoever doesn't yeah. want to be here can leave the ice and Pascal took him up on it. And that was right? kind of the beginning of the end.
2: Yeah. It's, it's a sad story in some ways, but with redemption at the end. Pascal came to us as a training camp tryout. He'd broken his leg in his draft year and it took a long time to recover, so he wasn't drafted. Scored about a lot in the queue. Here we were an expansion team. He didn't speak a word of English. He was from a rural town outside Quebec City. <coughs> City. Excuse me. He had a big smile on his face regardless. He was committed to hockey. He had a joie de vivre that you could not replicate. You know, very few players have that. Just love to practice, love to play, smile for everyone. Just positive person. And going into that lockout, you know, you had the the great start with the wild. And going not blackout, going into the holdout, everything changed. You know, he got a new agent, and the guy not telling him, you know, this is great to play in the NHL. Let's get you here a long time. Make sure you enjoy life. Make the right decisions. It was about you're getting screwed. You're a great player. They're holding you back. Sharks holding you back. They're not paying you enough. He lost that, and from that point on, he still played, but he wasn't the same Pasquale. There wasn't the same jump in his step or in his play culminating in the incident you just mentioned and so he went on to another program uh, another team and kind of did the same thing until he landed with the penguins and he rediscovered that Joao de I think it's because and you're, you're indirectly pointing this out he was playing with such good players there talented players who loved playing and took playing seriously he couldn't be a prima donna anymore he couldn't say like oh, if only I didn't have Jacques it, all the excuses are away you're, you're with the penguins these guys are working hard around you and they're they're world-class players. He rediscovered that and finished his career in great fashion that way. So it was a redemptive story, and I'm very happy mm. for him.
1: Let's talk 2008-9, Marion Gabrick. That summer, you guys are trying to sign him to an extension. Uh, uh, you guys offered him huge contract. Uh, $80, million. Yep, $80 million. Yep, $80 over 10 years. Yes. Yep, and he turned it down and still to this day is angry that I reported it. Um, but <laughs> anyway, um, he immediately gets hurt playing soccer hacky sack in South Florida. Right. And it just – it led to a lot of problems that year. He ultimately went under the knife with uh, Mark Philippon in, in Colorado, um, yeah. in Vail. And uh, it's it, – if I remember correctly, the organization didn't really at the time feel he needed that surgery, that he was doing it to almost maximize his 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 value as a free agent the next summer. Right. He comes back after the trade deadline, if I remember correctly. So you guys couldn't even trade him. He
2: yeah.
1: gets almost a point a game, maybe even more. And then, you, then uh, if I remember also correctly, Doug Riser was fired, Chuck Fletcher comes in, and then suddenly Ron Salser wanted that contract back, um, which uh, obviously Chuck Fletcher didn't do. Yeah. Um, but it, I just sort of gave the Cliff Notes version of that year. What's your perspective?
2: I mean, you've had it hit pretty well. I think from the picture, because we didn't <clears throat> talk to the media that much, as you know. I mean, I was friendly with you, but we weren't out there giving quotes on what a bad guy Marion is or how this should go or whatever else. We just went and ran the team. But on the other side, the strategy was to try to paint a sympathetic picture for Marion. And so I think the average fan thought there was more acrimony there than there was. I saw Marion every day. I visited Solakia five times during his tenure with the Wild. Saw him in his hometown and all the other friends during the summer. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the real point of it was a strategic one. In the beginning, we had Ron Salser on the other side who had, to my knowledge at the time, every single big UFA he'd had over the years had moved teams to try to maximize his dollar. He wasn't so much about you know the right place to be as the right dollar, and he had one re-sign. So we thought, well, this is what we're looking at, but we'll make the biggest offer we can anyway, regardless. So we did that in camp, turned down, and then we said, if you get injured, this is, this is not going to go well for you. So we're taking the offer off the table. And you don't have to play for your contract. And Marion wasn't happy about that. But we said, look, we could do a deal or not. You know, We're not fighting. You. We're not telling you you have to take it. We're just saying, here's what we have for you. It's your choice. So upon advice, he turned it down. And then he was always injury prone, as you know. And he got injured shortly thereafter. And that changed kind of the course of history in a way. Because we missed the playoffs by two points. We had won the division championship the year before. You know, a year with Marion might look different. So both for the team and for Marion, I think their histories were changed. Marion ended up signing a deal for $7.5 million a year for five years with the Rangers after that, much less money, obviously, than he would have gotten And his career arc changed. Notably, many people who felt that Marion would score more in the Eastern Conference, which then was a much higher scoring conference, get out from underneath Jacques. His scoring average increased by one-tenth of a goal per year in the Eastern Conference. So that one-tenth of a goal per year was what he got, but... His life changed, our course changed, and no good really came of it. Yeah. You know, unlike Dupuis, who had a redemptive story, uh, Marion kind of won a cup with L.A. in the end. You know, kind of staggering to the finish line with his injuries, but that's the way it was.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I know it was a it was a, obviously tough for the organization to lose Marion for nothing, which uh, you know, which uh, then the Wild go out and acquire Marty Havlat, who did not uh, did not turn out to did not pan out to say the least here. some of the things that I love talking to former uh, GMs and assistant GMs about that they would never talk about at the time is uh, those trades that got away, the signings that got away, um, you know, something that the Minnesota wild were close to that maybe the average fan doesn't know. Uh, can right. you, can, let's start with trades. Any Anybody that you guys came close to acquiring that just never panned out? No. <laughs> really?
2: In a word, no. Doug had been a trading guy with Calgary, hadn't worked out for him. <clears throat> I think he had a predilection towards building from within and building a team through drafts, free agency, and you know the waiver wire. Different. We found Curtis Foster, Joel Ward, and the miners. So there were not big offers out there for trades. Always smaller ones. The biggest trade we ever offered was Osullivan in the first for Demetra, and that happened.
1: Yeah, so and it trade. needed to it, didn't like Trevor Lewis have to be on the board for that trade to even happen.
2: Uh, they didn't tell us that at the time, but yes, that's what okay. Happened because
1: yeah, the trade actually didn't happen until the 17th pick or whatever pick the Kings had that year, um, in Vancouver.
2: Right, um, that's when I played that awful pr- uh, prank on Dean Lombardi. Yeah, tell tell everybody that story. You know, I feel a little bad because I've had some great pranks over the years, and then I had to stop doing them because once the police were called to the office. <laughs> but <clears throat> Patrick O'Sullivan had had an un, undeserved poor reputation leading up to his draft because he had had a father who was a well-known kind of stalker and alcoholic, violent guy, and he clashed with him. He had some behavioral issues. Good enough kid. He's a great guy, but it was out there, and I knew Dean knew this, and so when we were making the deal, Dean and I had to step aside to do it quickly. We had about three minutes uh, in between picks, and he looked very nervous because he was you know, trading away Demetra to try to to make the team younger, more skilled, and looking ahead, and he says to me, so how's Patrick? Is he okay? He's a good guy. Like I've heard this stuff, but I, I, you guys said he's fine. And I said, "Oh yeah, like you could talk to him yourself." Here, I got a number for him. He's living at like a halfway house in California, and poor Dean's oh, man. face dropped. Oh man, the California Penal league, like Charlie Sheen, major league. I said, and then I, I gave it like four seconds. I was like, "Nah, just kidding." He's like, he's at home now. Here's his number. Oh, my I God. Dean but I don't think crazy. I've ever heard that story. Yeah, that that's that's hockey, and, uh, <laughs> and you learn from Gila Point. You learn from the best.
1: Yeah, that is true. Gila Point, the ultimate prankster. Um, <laughs> that was also the draft in Vancouver. Didn't like you and I and a couple other hockey writers actually go to dinner at the keg. Yeah. And on the way back to your hotel, you left your you left your cell phone in a cab. Right. Like as Doug Reisberg was trying to get you to talk to you about the Dmitri trade, right?
2: Yeah. So. And I'm mixing up a couple of things because it happened so many times that I'd be doing <laughs> something and Doug would need me and I'd run off. So one time I left my jacket because it was – and you picked it up, right? Yeah, that was the peach coat. It's not pink. It's salmon. We, we've been over <laughs> this. But uh, I would just have to run because Doug would like, Yeah, It's big. So I'd run. In. So I was actually running to get back to the hotel because he'd already reached out to me and said, you got to get back here. So when I got to the hotel, I just bolted from the cab and ran up to his room and then I realized the cell phone was gone, which was – you know, a little bit too late, but having pulled away. But that's how hockey works. Didn't change the course of history this time.
1: No, no, and that was actually a, a really good trade for the for the Wild. Uh, wound up winning a division a couple of years later uh, with Pavel Dimitra as your first line center with uh, Miran Gaborik. It was the Slovak nation. Bronco Radovojevic was on that team yeah.
2: too, as if I remember correctly. I think Bronco is now an official with the Bratislava team. Really. Marion, I loved uh, Bronco. Yeah. You know, one of my guy. favorite
1: stories that I did was uh, the year that uh, that 2006 uh, training camp when I, I went to D'Amico and Sons in uptown with uh, Bronco Dimitra and Gabrick did a big story with them, brought a photographer yeah. and then we went back to Gabrick's house and I did a big story on his his whole racing uh, like virtual thing that he had in his in his uh, one room there at his house uh, right by the Walker Art Center. It was just uh, it was one of my favorite stories I ever wrote strip. It's one of those stories that if I wrote it at the Athletic um, Tom, it would have been like probably 10 times the size, but I had to somehow right. cut it into like 30 inches in the, uh, in no, the, I remember
2: it well, because yeah. it was in a board meeting soon after that. Cause as G, uh, assistant GM reported the board on a monthly basis, You had these big questions in the budget and all that <clears throat> And yeah. the story came out and I think it was either the main owner or one of the owners said with Doug there. So he, this kid likes, he has a Ferrari, he's into racing, I should drive race cars. Like, what happens if something happens to him? What happens if he crashes, something bad happens? And I looked at him deadpan, and I said, well, it depends on how he's playing. (laughs) And and Doug loved that, you know. He just just loved those uh, uh, Machiavelli takes on things. So, and then we moved on.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of Tim Peel today. Like, you know, he, he loses yeah. his job. The league acts like it made this big bold decision on Tim Peel, not letting everybody know that he was retiring in a month from today.
2: Terrible ref for 30 years. I mean, Doug used to throw stuff around in the box when he to, to, uh, Todd Zelkin and Tim Peel were the bane of the first year Minnesota Wild, and I'll never forget that. <laughs> but you're right. It's all it's all a farce. Who's the
1: there. guy that um that Scott Zelkin,
2: sorry, not Todd. It,
1: it, who's the guy though that uh um, got used to get into it with Jacques all the time, wasn't it? It wasn't Blaine Angus. It was a
2: a Mick Oh, it was a nickname, not the the big guy. Uh, no, I mean, no, no, no. That's the younger McDevoo. guy, Brad oh, yeah. Meyer.
1: Brad Meyer, right? Yes. Yep. And yeah. uh, and it's still t- <laughs> last to this day. Um, I know. You know what I didn't ask you, and this I know there are answers to. What's the signings that got away?
2: Well, clearly, Hosa and Forsberg are the public ones. Hmm. Hosts probably hurt, said hurt the most, and we moved on. You know, that's hockey. But we had that day two very long conversations with him, 45 minutes or more, Doug and I on the phone with him about what it would look like. He was very open and honest. He'd narr- narrowed it to Detroit in the Wild, and for different reasons. Detroit looked like a shorter-term win. The Wild looked like the next five years of a window, you know, with the players we had at the time, <clears throat> to, uh, to make a run and a good place to live and raise his family. So... He dug in on everything, even asking about where we practice, what the commute times were, you know, and looking up stuff on the internet, calling players on our team to see what they thought. And it really came down to it. And he decided to, if you remember, a one-year deal with Detroit at the time, so he'd still have options after that year. He kind of felt like he wasn't closing doors, but had he signed with us, then what was on a three-year deal clearly would have changed. He was one of the top five, if not one of the top three forwards in the league at the time, I think, in my opinion. Um, would have changed your fortunes. The Forsberg thing was different. You know, it was later, near the end of his career, and he had a foot injury. He was thinking of coming back to, to play. Mm-hmm. He danced with us in Nashville and Colorado for some time. Tom Thompson had a dinner with him. We were at the point then, you know, with Ralston and Gabrick firing Demetra, We really thought we were one strong forward away from competing uh, for a cup, at least not to go to the end. And he would have been a difference maker even at that stage in his career. But in the and, you know, Peter Ford is great because he's a tough guy and a team team guy. And he went back to Colorado because he said simply to us on the phone, he said, you know, they gave me the chance. That's, what, that's where it all started. So I'm going to finish my career. Yeah, there.
1: you got to respect that. Do you think, I mean, the HOSA, the HOSA deal, was that, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that that was in 2008 going into Marion's last contract. Was that something that you were trying to do to sort of placate Marion um, to get him to sign on the dotted line for his 10-year deal or no?
2: Yeah, it's kind of like marrying a supermodel, and it's incidental that she's also rich. You know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's just who and you yes, want. Yes,
2: that's there, but and it's great. But it, it, getting Marion Hossa was the number one idea. Right. The fact that if we landed Marion Hossa, it would probably mean Gaborik would stay. But Hossa was a better player than Gaborik at the time, so he would come before Gabrick, You know, and that. That instance.
1: Um, as you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Tom, you, you uh, with the GM of the Houston Aeros as well. One year, you won a Calder Cup there. Um, who was the, the the coach of that team?
2: Was it Todd McClellan? Todd McClellan, right? Yep, uh, that was a heck of a team. It was. And looking back on some of the things that happened, uh, went went to Game Seven. We were in Hamilton, Ontario. We had a five on three against in overtime when Travis Roach accidentally shot the puck in the crowd. We had the automatic penalty then. Uh, we were testing in the AHL. We uh, gave up four or five shots on goal, and uh, looked like we were going to lose. And then we came back to win. And I want—I want to say it was Stefan Bayou who scored the winner in overtime because they were double shifting stuff. You never ran out of energy. So you just had boundless energy. And that was the year cutting my teeth as a GM, where I traded our leading scorer and our number one defenseman away. So I traded the number one defenseman away. No, leading scorer first. Who's that again? Comic- it was uh, Corey LaRose, who now lives in the community here. Um, and I see him all the time. He and Lawrence Nicolot, the two guys I traded, married girls from Minnesota, settled down in Maple Grove, and now I have to see him in all the rinks. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> we'd have a Calder <laughs> Cup ring if we were in for you. So I traded Corey LaRose under the theory, for those that read my book, that Corey was a great guy and a good scorer, but he was not an alpha leader like a Marc Messier. Like, you he, he wanted him to be your second best player if you're going to win, because he was a quiet guy. He just wanted to do his small area. I felt like it was holding the team back in an odd way and that if I got more toughness and grit and we already had enough scoring, we'd do that. So when I traded him, Tom McClung got on the phone. He's like, Tom, you just traded my lead scorer for Jay Henderson from New York. He's like a third liner. I said, yes, but it's going to work out. Trust me. Todd, <laughs> To his credit, I was like, okay. Two weeks later, uh, we go into Detroit or Grand Rapids by play Detroit's team and we lose three to nothing and the shots were 30 to 10 in our favor. So I was like, Man. and Doug says to me, you can't win without a goalie and slammed his door as he often does. And so I said I got to get a goalie. So I traded our number 1 defenseman to the Rangers for Johan Holmquist. Um, and then Todd calls me and says, "Tom, you traded my leading scorer and now you've traded my number 1 defenseman." He thought it was like the movie Major League once again where we're trying to lose. <laughs> and he said, "No, no, no, this is you need a goalie. It's going to be great." So we won the Calder Cup and the goalie I traded for was the MVP in the playoffs. So we all made out like bandits, but it was the minor leagues is just a rollicking good time. Flights are missed, bags are left. You don't fly charter. Sometimes you get to a city and three guys' players' bags aren't there. You have to put together equipment for them. Um, you get fans doing weird things. You get Max Noreau <laughs> scoring a goal that went through the net, and they don't find it. You know, It's just like slap shot uh, all over again.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, that The year of the lockout um, had to be fun where you had guys like Koivu down there.
2: Yeah, Koivu and Burns were there. And Bouchard, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, what an incredibly talented crew. We actually didn't do that well. Harding was
1: the goalie? I'm sorry? Who had the goalie been?
2: Oh,
1: would have been Harding, yet right? Yeah.
2: So it was Harding and a veteran whose name escapes me. It was, you know, odd because we had high expectations for the team with all the graphics there, but everyone else did too. So you know, you look at your own team and you think, "This is great." I'll give an example. A lot of people wanted to put off the draft this year because scouting staff are saying we don't have enough time if you give us two more months we'll have time to draft. Well you're giving all the teams two more time two more months so you know further ahead. In this case we we're like oh we have all our best prospects in the minors this is going to be great. We're gonna kick ass. And then we find out that, oh every team put their best prospects in the <laughs> So now you got to outwork other teams, just like in any other game. Right. So that year was, was okay, but not stellar. But we learned a lot about Brent Burns in that year, which eventually came to fruition, unfortunately, in San Jose for Todd McClellan because Todd was coaching the Houston Aeros. So everything yeah. he learned, he took with him.
1: Yep, no doubt. Um it- Brent Burns, I mean, that's got to be one of your biggest prides. Also, you guys draft him as a forward, you turn him into a defenseman, and then he turns into an absolute star in San Jose, wins a Norris Trophy, uh, added a couple tattoos, some farm animals since then as well. Not only farm animals, but game animals. Um, uh, I don't know if you've seen his ranch down in Texas, but he's got, you know, cooks his own food, kills his own food, all that type of stuff.
2: He's got it going on.
1: Yeah, he's a fun... uh, I mean, Brent Burns is one of my favorite people that I've ever, ever, ever covered. Um, And he's one of the first people, because we didn't really get this in Florida, but he he sort of allowed me into his life, right? I mean, I profiled him twice at the the, uh, Star Tribune, once where I went to his Woodbury home, the other where I went to his Lake Elmo home and did big features on him, I think he realized at a young age too, as much as he was shy and didn't love talking after games and things like that, I think he realized too, the value of sort of branding yourself. And, and so we sort of, you know, we sort of made it, you know, uh, uh, you know, took advantage of each other. I was getting great stories. He was getting publicity and it just, it was one of my favorite, favorite people
2: to cover. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a unique story. I should probably write a different piece on my experience with Brent Burns because it started at the draft table. <clears throat> Excuse me, when we drafted him, he was listed, I think, 105th overall by Central Scouting. We take him 20th overall just after <laughs> Joffrey Lupul. So I was on the pro side. So the amateur side, you know, I dealt with them because I negotiated contracts, but I wasn't out scouting or you no. Know, I knew Brent Burns was on our list, so I leaned over to Tom Thompson. I said, Psst, Tom, so just so I know, I'm talking to people. Why did we draft this guy? Give me the story. <laughs> he says tom he said proudly he's 65 athletic and skates like the wind meaning we don't know what he's going to do but you start with that and mm. you get something so he had been a goalie until he was 13 years old and they told him he couldn't play up you know another level so he came out as a goalie so he came in the net played defense was moved to forward in junior um, and and went back and forth between defense and forward he was drafted as a forward started with us as a forward was moved to defense and back to forward and eventually permanently moved to defense with the San Jose Sharks That in itself is an amazing story. But what a kid. You know, I I use the Brent Burns example, as it's called in our firm, uh, with all my new clients in the agency. Excuse me. Because Brent, in the first couple of years, was a great athlete and one of the best athletes on the team. And he was very disjointed and very inconsistent, almost incomprehensible in his play. You know, one night, kind of like how I play golf. You know, I might be one under for three holes and then take an eight. So he he really did that in the hockey rink. You know, you have a game where you say, "Wow, that guy's going to dominate." He just dominated six shifts in a row. And then another game where he turns the wrong way, changes at the wrong time, giveaway. So we can understand it. One time in Vancouver, uh, he was going to be scratched. Doug and I were waiting for a cab to go over to the rink. as The players started milling about for the bus. because We were leaving at the same time. He saw Doug. Uh, he saw Brent. He said, "Brent, hop in." So he hops in the cab with us on the way over. Doug says to Brent, "So, what was your day like? When did you find out you weren't playing?" He said, "Well, at lunch, some jockey to tell us." Doug said, "Well, what's your, how's your game day routine differ from the usual game day routine? You're not playing." Brent says, "Game day routine?" Doug says, "Yeah, like what do you do on a game day? Like everyone?" He says, "I don't know. I, I wake up 15 minutes before we have to have a meeting at the hotel, and then I go over to practice on the bus, and then I, I eat because the guys say to eat, and then sometimes they sleep, sometimes they don't. I don't know. Whatever I feel like." Doug said, "Brent, you got to develop a game day routine. You are not." condition yourself to play. And you gave the example of Gila Lafleur, with the old Montreal Canadiens. who used to show up at the rink at noon every day before a game and put on all his equipment except for his skates and just sit there and smoke cigarettes and talk to the Zamboni guy and prepare himself mentally. And Serge Savard of the same team would arrive 15 minutes before Scotty Bowman's meeting, which is as late as he could come. Both of them had different ways of approaching game days, but it was kind of scientifically developed to optimize their performance. He says, Brent, you got to try different things. Eat breakfast, don't eat breakfast, sleep, don't sleep, the music you listen to. I want you to write down your game to your routine for the next seven games and then look at it and we'll decide what works for you, what doesn't. You'll start picking out ways to prepare yourself mentally for games. Interestingly, uh, just after that, Malcolm Gladwell came out with a book that's widely read in the hockey community called Outliers, which goes over how great people, athletes, and artists prime themselves for competitions by having a predictable routine that prepares them subconsciously for competition. Doug was just saying that from experience. And I'll tell you, that was the difference for Bernsey. It wasn't like the next day he was great. That was the beginning of the transition when he went from uh, a man-child, as it were, to a great performer. He started that biking routine. He started all yep. the Bought some snakes. He, yeah, but he was religious about his routines after that. And that channeled all that incredible energy and athleticism into a Hall of Fame player that he's become today. With my clients, I start out with that story and we start developing game day and practice day routines for life so that they can have a kind of a script, as it were, for their talent and not just hope the right things happen at the right times.
0: Yeah, makes
1: total sense.
0: Um, Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: And as uh, Tom Lin is learning, uh, we have long, entertaining, fun podcasts throughout our network. Uh, By the way, uh, Ron Hextall, the general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins, joined Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun on the two man advantage edition of the Athletic Hockey Show this Wednesday at the Athletic. Ian Mendez and down goes Brown. Uh, Sean McIndoo have the Athletic Hockey Show Thursday at the Athletic and uh, Women's Olympic hero, Jocelyn Lamoureux of the United States is Craig Custance's guest this week on the full 60 at the Athletic. Um, you mentioned Tom Thompson before, and it struck a uh, memory in my, um, in my memory bank about uh, him and his one of his initial meetings with Derek Bugard, where I think the, the old story goes, Tom, and tell me if you've heard it and I'm getting it wrong. But one night he takes Derek Bugard out to a steakhouse in Canada, probably the keg, brings him out for a super nice meal. Next day, he brings him to McDonald's for dinner, and Boogie was like, "Kind of like, what the heck is going on here?" And Tom Basie's like, "Do you want to eat at the Keg or do you want to eat it at uh, McDonald's? This is what you have to do to be an NHL player, and uh, otherwise you'll be at one or the other." Um, uh, tell me if I'm exaggerating that story, but two, yeah,
2: no. t- uh, details are off. One, it was Barry McKenzie, the director of player development. Okay, so the and bad, two, bad memory. Wendy's was okay. second place. Who doesn't love Wendy's? And um, Barry said Derek got it. You know, yeah, he was, he was like, ah. I do the right things and, and follow this game the right way, uh, I eat steak. And if I screw around and have fun, yeah. then it's the other thing.
1: Tell me about Derek Bugart, the, the human being. Uh, you know, it just po- kills me to think that it's 10 years, May 13th, I believe. Uh, that yeah. that 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 date will forever live in my mind right. um, where I'm driving by the Heritage Landings in, in downtown Minneapolis and see a bunch of flashing lights, don't think of anything of it go up to my condo, and within minutes, I find out that Derek Bougard passed away. Um, tell me about him as a human.
2: You know, it's, it's an eclectic story, but it's simple, like Derek himself. <clears throat> he he was a man of simple tastes and simple desires and wants, and I love that about him. I remember when he first signed Crow and came down to Houston, he wasn't quite ready for the HL, so we sent him to near, nearby Louisiana to play for Dave Farish there. And about four days in, his roommate, who was more of a senior guy, called me, a defenseman from the WHL, and said, you know, I don't think he's eating right. He keeps going to the gas station just for dinner, and he comes back and microwaves burritos and stuff like that. So I said, geez, I'll, I'll talk to the team and get to him. And Derek had come out a junior, and he'd lived at home a lot with a billet and had never really prepared his own meals or anything else, but he, he didn't want to ask anyone. Like most people would say, like, hey, how do I get going here? And so – he was just finding food in the walking distance. So we had someone kind of say, hey. and Actually, actually after this, we did, did this with a lot of junior players. Here's how you write a check. Here's how you sign a lease. Here's how you grocery shop. Here's how you plan for the week in groceries. And once he got that, he was great. And then he, he said, wow, I can I can plan these meals and, and so that I have what I want when I want. And he used to write it out. So he was a lump of clay when he came to us, really, um, and not formed in that way. In Houston, he... You know, moved up to Houston Arrows. He became a good teammate and a good guy. And <coughs> Excuse me. A little, lost a little voice there. He really endeared himself to his teammates, not just by the fighting, but by really wanting to be a part of the team. He was also very trusting and naive. I remember he had a girlfriend at the time. and lashed on him pretty good. And then when he went to move up to Minnesota, sued him for common law marriage because they had that in Texas. It, it was kind yeah, of set up. If I remember right. that. And uh, it was just the type of thing he would fall prey to because here was someone being nice to him and taking care of him, cooking for him, taking care of him. This seems great, he thought, that they wouldn't have ulterior motives. But he was a trusting soul in that way. And then we, when he got up to Minnesota, the one thing I'll say about Derek is that of all the tough guys I've known, and I've known a lot, uh, when we had a lot in the organization between Houston and, and Minnesota, Derek was the one who enjoyed fighting the most. Some of it didn't really like it, but did it as a job. Some didn't think one way or another about it, but did it when they were angry or called to. Some didn't like it, like John Scott, who was kind of a policeman. He fought when he had to. But Derek was a guy who we'd sit and watch a game. I remember one time, uh, for some reason, we were at a rink watching younger players play. He said, uh, geez, sometimes I, I, oh, no, I I remember it was. It was Traverse City watching other teams play in the rookie uh, NHL rookie camp. And he talked about how he'd approach the game to get in a fight and how he'd do it at the right time of the shift. And his eyes just glowed. He was like, here's something I like to do and do well. And so that was different for me for Derek. In the end, his injury started to do him in and that eventually led to his addiction, which led to his demise. But before that happened, he enjoyed the game very much.
1: Yeah, he was a really good hearted, hearted person um i wish yeah. i still had my own blackberries so i could look back and read some of the texts that he and i had but he was one of the nicer like he i i i know this kid he's not a kid anymore named kyle roach and i was friends with his dad kevin who died oh a, i remember in his young, yeah young yeah. 40s and the night I, I remember i a week before kevin passed away i'm sitting at at um his house in invergrove heights and we're looking at kyle skating on the on the rink in the back and and um you know, I just remember how how touched that that Derek would be hearing about this because years earlier, uh, Kyle Roach used to make these carve these pumpkins and he'd put Derek Bugard's face on it. And when mm-hmm. Derek saw this, he was actually going to come to Kyle's house and surprise him on Halloween one year. Um, but the night before the game, night before this happens, he gets into a fight and he wound up in I think Doctor Nanny's chair um, having a couple root canals. Oh. But the other thing that I always remember about Derek is the day that doug risebrow is fired he has a press conference at tom reeds Mm -hmm. he coincidentally is the day that derek bugard's having off-season shoulder surgery and derek fresh off the table from tria comes still groggy to tom reeds to say goodbye and thank doug for everything and what was crazy also about that if if you know the derek bugard story is it was that surgery that started his uh his his road toward addiction Right. But the fact that he thought, like, uh, you know, right off the, the operating table, I'm going to go mm-hmm. thank the GM that gave me my my career, I think just says
2: everything about him. Yeah, Doug was a lot closer to him than people realize as well. He called him, yeah. like, not, not, not a lot of minor league players get calls from the NHL GM you know, once every two or three weeks, but Derek did. And Doug really took a personal interest in him. So that was a good relationship. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, let's talk about uh, you know what we haven't talked about yet. Tom is uh, Miko Koivu and the way that you guys drafted him in 2001. It's one of the great stories of all time. Where you essentially, as an organization, is so wor- you're so worried that Montreal Canadiens who were right behind you in the draft were going to f- f- leapfrog you and draft Miko Koivu to reunite reunite or unite uh, Saku and Miko in Montreal that you essentially started a lie. By telling Bob Nagley, if I remember correctly, that you guys were going to take a goalie, thinking that it would probably get back to Bob Nagley's buddy, the owner of the Montreal mm-hmm. Canadiens, and and basically started in a complete lie that the Canadians were convinced that you were not taking Koivu, so they never even tried to trade above you.
2: <laughs> you say complete lie. I mean, there's so many <laughs> ways to characterize this. <coughs> I like the Homer Simpson. Oh, Marge, that was just a lie. Yeah.
1: Uh, good, you're uh, right
2: on, though, because – I wasn't privy to the subterfuge yet at the point we were leaving, going to the draft. I think we were already at the draft. because you get there four or five days early. and Doug was talking to Bob and kind of slipped in the end of the conversation, like we hope to get a good goalie in this draft, and winked at Bob, like, hey, we got a secret. And He walked away, and I said to Doug, we're not taking a goalie. Like, I don't think we had a goalie in our top 15. <laughs> <clears throat> he said, yeah, 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 you'll understand why. So he told Tom Thompson to tell the amateur regional guys the same thing, you know, watch the goalies, just hoping that – it would, if leak out even indirectly. Someone's, you know, a scout might say to a fellow scout from their team, like, "Oh, I've got to rank all these goalies again. They keep bugging me on the goalies." So we went with goalies, and I believe Anaheim was drafting just ahead of us, uh, Pierre Gauthier, and we were afraid that Montreal would flip there to get him. And then just before the draft started, they were talking, so we we're nervous there, but they didn't make the move. And then we were holding our breath, worried Anaheim was going to take him. And just before they were gonna pick, Pierre Gauthier leaned over to Doug and said, We're getting the little guy. Now there was this diminutive Russian in the draft who they ended up taking. And then so when Miko Koivu's name was called by the wild, the Canadian stable next to us just gasped, audibly gasped. And a couple guys punched the table, one through a pencil. And it's funny, I, I've talked about this before. Punching or, or you know, pounding your fist on the table is kind of a metaphor, but they literally did it. They were so upset. Mm-hmm. And, the bad feeling carried over for years after that among the staff.
1: Yep. Doug Ryswell uh, just defrauds the organization that made him a stud <laughs> as a hockey player. It's just absolute payback. Um, yeah. Let me throw three quick hitters at you, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about Kaprizov slash Panarin. Sure. Um, Nicholas Backstrom. First, if I remember correctly, European free agent in NHL history, or am I totally wrong on that?
2: Oh, probably wrong. I didn't look it up, but at the I Panthers,
1: don't think so because remember before two thousand six, they
2: had to be drafted. Up to they 6, had to be right? drafted.
1: Like the the Panthers once took Yaroslav pa- Spachik at like age fifty in the draft, right? <laughs> you,
2: know, um, you know, but I didn't so find that year. It was yeah. Like-
1: well, either way, I remember it being a like I get a press release in two thousand six and like June first, and I'm like, all right, whatever. Dot dot dot. And put it in a notebook. And Next thing I know, Nicholas Backstrom's the winningest goalie in Wild
2: history. <laughs> Well, I'll I'll tell you a little bit of the story that reflects on me. I was the one responsible for plucking Dwayne Rollison out of the Miners, who won the, the Roger Crozier Saving Grace Award as the highest save percentage in the league, and I was the one responsible for plucking Backstrom out of Finland. So, my people would come to me and say, "What is your secret? Like, how do you judge these goalies? You're, you're a goalie guy, you know. You made your career, and, and <laughs> in Houston, the goalie I traded for won the uh, playoff MVP, and I had to confess, like." I have no idea how the position works. I don't even want to know. Like Bill Parcells hated kickers. I've never been fond of goalies because it always seems like the other teams is too good and yours isn't good enough. That's what Parcells would say about kickers.
1: That's like wild fans. Only only the wild have give up bad goals.
2: <laughs> it's true. never anybody else. So I'm I'm not especially fond of them. I represent some of his clients right now. When they've come to me to represent them, I explain to the beginning. I'm like, look, I hate goalies. That's that's how I start off the conversation. So the reason I took Dwayne Rolston out of the minors was because we wanted a third goalie to compete at the time for a spot who would be, we? would not lose on waivers. and would be desperate. And I was like, oh, this guy played in Worcester. He's got an engineering degree from Lowell. He's played a year in Worcester, which is the worst place in the world to play at that point. Very high crime and, and a terrible place to play. So I said, he'll do anything not to go back to the minors. So that was the brilliance I <laughs> that I brought to the goaltending position was this guy will be desperate. <laughs> Fast forward a couple years and we're looking at the roster and we, we weren't sure Josh Harding was ready. So Doug said, hey, can you get us a really good goalie who could play in the NHL, but we wouldn't lose on waivers? And I'm like, that's it's an impossible task. We'd already lost a couple of goalies on waivers in prior years. But then I saw if you sign a European goalie, they were exempt from waivers for a year, even though they were senior. So I was like, hmm, this guy's 28. He's already played at a very high level and proven himself, and yet he'll be exempt from waivers for a year. So if Hardy makes the team, we can send him to the minors. If he doesn't, we've got a legitimate answer. So, once again, it was strategy, not any mm. judge of him as a goalie. Now, they were both good goalies, don't get me wrong, but it was not like someone saw goaltending prowess in them and thought we had something. It was simple strategy that worked out. I and mean, playing for Jacques Lemaire's teams, if you're a positional goalie who works hard and keeps your T's crossed and your eyes dotted, you do pretty well.
1: Yeah. I remember. So Harding gets hurt. Uh, in in St. Louis in training mm-hmm. camp, and Backstrom winds up making the team, and Jock knew nothing about him, <laughs> nothing <laughs> about him. So it's Manny Fernandez, Nicholas Backstrom. Manny is gets off to a bit of a rough start. He's pulled three different times. That Backstrom came in and won all three games. Won his fr- only goalie in NHL history to win his first three games in the NHL in relief, and then. And then Backstrom just goes on an absolute tear. Takes Manny's job. They share the Jennings. I remember going to the the Stanley Cup Final in Ottawa in two thousand seven, and there's Backstrom accepting a trophy. I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> so, uh, is by the way, if you if, if you're uh, listening to the straight from the source all the time and um, haven't heard my Nick Nicholas Backstrom podcast, um, probably about a uh, about twelve fifteen months ago because it was during the when he was in town for the Miko Koyvu. Yeah, yeah, the Miko Koivu uh, uh, thousand game ceremony. Uh, it was really a, just a really fun sit down with Nicholas Backstrom. Uh, speaking of fun podcasts, uh, let me ask you about Nick Schultz. I mean, that's got to be somebody else that you guys are really proud of. Second draft pick in Wild History. We had him on last week's show.
2: Right. And Nick is a person I refer to once again in my current practice quite frequently because <clears throat> I can point out to him that without being a, having any special size or speed or athletic ability, he was... A person who parlayed his ability into a which I think was a 16 year career in the NHL, give or take a year. And he was a part of some important teams and he was a leader and he was someone they relied upon. So, you know, I impress upon players that I don't mean to say Nick was a bad athlete, but he wasn't the fastest player in the team or a junior, and he wasn't huge. He was 6'1, 186 when we drafted him. He just maximized his talent and ability by being a hardworking team guy, 24-7, 365 and he's that way to this day, even in his current role, and it's just, it's one of those reasons people like you love to cover hockey players, Mm -hmm. because there are Nick Schultz out there.
1: Oh my god, I I totally agree. Uh, It's the it's dealing with people like Nick Schultz is why I just love this sport, which is why another reason why I can't wait to start talking to these players again, because there are mm-hmm. so many Nick Schultzes out there. Uh, last question on the quick hitters on uh, players of yesteryear. And then I want to talk to you about Kaprizov uh, slash Panarin. Yeah. Um, and that's Pierre Uh Another, uh, uh, the guy, the guy uh, Jacques, we used to get a ho- hoot when he'd call him butch, butchie. Yeah. And, um, you know, somebody else he filed for arbitration once. That was another wonderful battle between Tom Lynn and Alan Walsh. It was, Ooh, yeah. yeah, it was one of my favorite things to cover during my time covering Tom Lynn was all his battles with Alan.
2: Well, uh, Pierre Marc Bouchard, that player there, you know, <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: would say, you know, it was, it was tough in a way, and I want to explain this to the fans that it's not tough. Pierre Marc's a great guy, and we, we liked him personally very much but there is a type of player who is much more appealing to the fans and the press than for those that need to their jobs depend on winning and losing. And so in the NHL is now clear because of analytics, but we knew it early on, the center is the most valuable skater on the ice all things being equal. Because they play defense and offense and they're responsible for puck possession off the faceoff. Um, add to that if they add offense or anything else or there, defensemen are the next most important skaters, you know, we're not talking about goalies because the amount of time they spend on the ice and to the degree they can affect the game offensively and defensively. And then if all things being equal, you have a winger, you know, they're the least valuable. So you want to devote the least money to them. In the defensive zone, they're out covering the point. In the offensive zone, you know, they're either F1 or F3 for different situations, but they're often specialized. So Pierre Mark was a non-physical, non-defensive setup man winger. He did it pretty well. But here he was with 55 to 60 point average over a few years going into arbitration. That meant he was going to get a pretty good payoff because players are rewarded simply for statistics, not for their narrative. We knew internally that he wasn't as valuable, and I prepare arbitration papers, because um, I'll never forget when we were going to arbitration when Jacques said, like, well, we need this guy, Rolston's scoring 30 goals, we need him to set him up, and I said, Jacques, he has fewer than... Half of the first assists on his linemates' goals. Like he has a lot of second assists. So you find out stuff in arbitration. So, long story long, we're going to go to the wall with this guy because I need to keep his salary down so we can devote it to the more important positions on the ice. Once again, nothing towards him personally, just the strategy of hockey. And Doug pulls the plug on me the night before the hearing. We filed the brief. I, that. I thought we were going in, so having dinner with Chris Snow and Jamie Dial, my now current partner, but then a lawyer for the Wild. And uh, we were just getting ready to, you know, we're sharpening the swords, basically. And Doug says, "You know what, Tom? We want to go into this year running." Pierre Mark's been here for a while. You know, he had different reasons, but he said, "What would it take to settle this?" And I said, "Well, we're going to have to settle out of our range because the way we value him is not the same way that arbitration models would value him." So it ended up being, I believe, four point one million, and our high end was three point seven. Doug said, J- "Just just do it." So we did, and you will never saw a more depressed team of arbitration lawyers walking out of a, the keg that night. <laughs> the keg. That's your place. Um, It's it's a home away from home in Canada when you're doing hockey work.
1: Yeah, no doubt about that. I'm looking up the Bouchard. I thought it was a little more. I thought it was 4.8, but maybe you're right. Yeah, maybe
2: you're right. I mean, you're testing my memory there with all the contracts. Nope, nope, nope. We're sort of right.
1: You're you're right. You said 4.1. It's 4.08. That's why I thought 4.8. I knew there was an 8 in there.
2: You know, I figured out I did over 300 AHL and NHL contracts during my time at the Wilds, so... Some of them are starting to blur together a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, no, but you were right. You remembered.
0: Um, Let's let's end the show, uh, Tom, talking about
1: uh, Kaprizov um, and Panarin. Um, You know, they're, I think, probably going to forever be joined at the hip because uh, Panarin came over here at age 23, turning 24, four years UFA. The only reason why Kaprizov's not four years from UFA is because um, they had to burn the first year, Um, you know, instant success like um, Kaprizov. First, uh, to let everybody know, you know, Panarin um, incredibly well. You were the one that was his first agent. Um, so tell everybody about one Panarin, and, and maybe, I don't know if you've watched a lot of Kaprizov. Uh, you you do live here in Minnesota. Uh, how do they compare to
2: each other? Well, in the first instance, Panarin's story. So he was a diminutive player. He was the I think MVP of the Ivan Halinka 18U in his draft year, but still wasn't drafted. He was very small. <laughs> And he was a pretty good player for his draft year, but not a dominant. And it wasn't until he was beyond the drafting time that he really came into his own in the KHL, but he had a three-year contract, so he couldn't come over. So near the end of this three-year contract, another client of mine, Victor Tikodov, the first year, former first-round mm-hmm. pick of the Phoenix Coyotes, then Phoenix Coyotes, contacted me and said, hey, I got this teammate here. We're good friends. Doesn't speak a word of English. NHL teams are calling him. He doesn't really trust his Russian agents. I told him I got an agent I can trust over at the U.S. Can he talk to you? I had heard Panarin's name because I actually saw that Ivan Holinka tournament back in I think 2008. That's all I knew of him. That started the story to where I think there were 11 teams in it at the end, but just about every NHL team, except for the Wild, uh, wanted Panarin to come over at the time. I ended up putting him in Chicago for this simple reason. Most free agents in his position wanted to come to a bad team so they get all the ice time and offensive zone his own starts and all that. And Panarin's a complimentary player. I mean, he's not like a Barkov or McKinnon, who does a lot of his own, he compliments other players. And I said, if you're playing with other great players, you're more likely to succeed. So we put him in Chicago, you know, rookie of the year and all that. And then we got to a difficult position where he was two years away from unrestricted free agency at the end of his entry-level contract. The team wanted to sign him to either a one-year deal, so that they had a year to buy, or a long-term contract. We went through a very difficult negotiation with with a friend of mine, Scotty, uh, sorry, not Scotty, Stan, Stan. Bowman and Norm McIver there, and in the end, we ended up getting the two-year deal for the Ben record. It's still a record. It's the largest two-year deal in NHL history at $6 million per year, but it was fairly acrimonious, and it set the stage for him to go to the Rangers for $12.5 million a year eventually. Yeah. But it was a tough go. So when you're looking at a player come here, that's part of it. Now, where I think they're similar besides their pedigrees and resumes, as you pointed out, they both had success in the KHL before coming, similar age, also skilled players, I would say – uh, Kaprizov has the same joie, de vivre, the love of the game. He's not cynical like some of the Russians you covered in Florida Panthers some years ago. I won't use any mm-hmm. names, but there are some guys who play for the money or just play to play. Both those players love playing and love winning. and You can see it in their faces uh, when they do something well. Uh, Kirill probably has a little bit more one-on-one in him than, than Artemi, which is not a criticism of either player. <clears throat> but on the whole, they both are greatly affected by the players that are around them. Um, they're not overly big players. They're both fast players, but not, you know, top five in the league in speed. So they need their skill to uh, complement other players on the ice to really work. So I think they're very similar players in that regard. Where Panarin had a different track is that he signed a big deal with Chicago. Chicago failed the playoffs. They kind of wanted to make some changes, so they sent him to Columbus. And he went out of the Rangers. Whereas kirill has a chance to kind of become the centerpiece of one of the NHL's great franchises here for a long time to come. And so he'll have to look hard at that um, before he makes the decision.
1: Last question, um, you know, I, I put on your agent hat and your team hat. So pretend you're the wild GM and pretend you're... I'm Al uh, Eagleson, in other words. Uh, yeah, and pretend you're Caprisoft's agent. Um, and you know what's really funny? Um, full disclosure, and I didn't even tell you this, one reason why I was calling you 15 times yesterday and we never... I mean, it was it was mm-hmm. hilarious. I mean, it was constant. Like every time you called me back, I was on the phone, vice versa, you're um, is the story that I wrote today. I interviewed uh, three agents for it, three executives for it. Yeah. Um, uh, I wound up talking to... To three different agents but i wanted to add your two cents off the record to it too which we never spoke so yeah. so for everybody listening to this i uh, know that uh, i have no idea what tom's gonna say and he was not one of my sources in today's article um but you know if you're you know basically the wilder in a position right now where he's ufa in three years so mm-hmm. you really can't you can't sign him to a three-year deal signing him to two could be suicide because all of a sudden this guy could say you know what I'm leaving here in a year. I'm not signing anything more than a year and two years. Right. Um, and, you know, from an eight-year perspective, why would Kaprizov do that? Like Kaprizov, the Wild aren't going to give him Panarin money right now on a long-term deal after 56 games. Mm-hmm. So my gut is it's going to be a five- or six-year contract. Um, what, how would you go about this if, one, you were the Wild, and, two, if you were Kaprizov's agent?
2: I think you left out a big point, not on purpose, but uh, mm-hmm. the COVID-depressed cap. For right, three years, so which is year part of the story, year, and yep. then the third year has a break on it, even if revenues go up. I think it's a 10% limiter with some other issues, and so that's not what we faced in some other clients' interests. So, just real quickly, the way I counsel clients in these positions is number one, I tell them make a list of your priorities in life, not just in hockey, because money's gonna be part of it. But what do you want? Because if you could get 90 million in city X and 82 million in city Y, uh, you the city X better be worth $8 million to you over 10 years, you know, in your life for that reason, for everything you want, you know, raising kids, geography, climate, your interests. So you want them to have their priority straight before they start into it. So you're saying, why would Kirill stay in Minnesota for eight years? Maybe his priority list lines up with it. I mean, if his agent even does this, I don't know. But if I was doing it, I'd say, what are your priorities? Then you look at the cap situation and say, all right, what makes sense for me to maximize my value into this situation? I could sign an eight year deal as a returner to a team, but that could be artificially deflated by the current situation. Or if COVID continues for a couple more years, maybe I'll make out like a bandit <laughs> and <I'll> say, <laughs> I did better. So you, and you have to make your own decisions there on how much risk tolerance you're willing to have, because that's very attractive to you. And then you could bet on yourself and just demand a when your deal, which he can do. It's not the, the right. If the team qualifies him and he accepts it, you know, he's one step closer. But the, the key is, I think, and I'm, I'm giving if Paul The listens to this, he's probably going to steal all this for his client. But the, the key thing is not only do you coach the client on their priorities and what they want in of life, but also remember that Doug Risborough told me if you think you only have one option, you'll do a bad deal on either side, whether you're a player trying to do something or a team. And so you got to remember more important than making the right choice is making the choice right. So after you make the choice, whether it's to stay or to eventually go, you can make that right in your life. And that's where you should put your energies into and not necessarily think the choice itself is going to determine your fate.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that makes a total, uh, a lot, a lot of sense. Hey, By the
2: way, last question, Lake wants me to
1: ask, do you need an intern at Veritas Hockey? <laughs> if you do, I'll just put you in touch with them.
2: Well, I'm a tough negotiator. Yeah. I was was thinking in these times, maybe I should auction off uh, one of those eBay type sites, how much they would pay me to be the intern, right? (laughs) Maybe I can afford another uh, 86 Priest Classic.
1: Well, if you need another intern, uh, he also tweeted this to you too. So I didn't, uh, I, for some reason, didn't copy and paste his, yeah, I didn't copy and paste what his actual Twitter name is. But if you look on your mentions, it's going to be on there. Hey, Tom, this was a ton of fun. Um, As I mentioned to Jeff Domet, our producer uh, before the podcast, this, there's a chance this podcast goes three hours. So, uh, (laughs) and it easily could have, but I have to get off to get on some wild zooms here. Um, But Tom, this was, this was a lot of fun. We should definitely do it more often. Maybe co-host a podcast at some point.
2: Maybe we'll do it from our favorite restaurant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No be doubt better. about it. Yep. All right,
2: my friend. Hey, take care. Yep.
1: yep. Thanks, Tom. That's Tom Lynn, the former Wild Assistant General Manager. And check out our comment section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app and rate and subscribe to Straight From the Source on Apple. If you aren't already a subscriber and you're listening in the United States, go to theathletic.com slash Straight From the Source. If you're listening to Canada, go to theathletic.com slash Straight From the Source Canada. Receive a subscription for just $1 a month. I think that's a loony up in Canada. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next week.